Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. As we open this book to chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. He is the maker of this world. He is the beginning of history, but He is also the heir of history. He is where all of history is leading to. He is the one who will inherit sons and daughters in eternity because He has been faithful to redeem and to forgive those same sons and daughters in time. If you remember, I mentioned the Apostle Paul's words on Mars Hill. He said, in Him we live and we move and we have our being. The author of Hebrews goes on and says that the character of Jesus is unparalleled, incomparable. He is the exact representation of God's nature. Without flaw, He is perfectly holy, undefiled, radiant and pure in all His nature. Fact is, Jesus Christ, when He came to earth, made the astonishing claim that He who has seen Me, He has seen the Father. He said, I and the Father were one. Incredible, incredible claims by the most incredible figure of human history. In fact, the Scripture says that when Jesus came, it was the fullness of time. Time was brimming and spilling over. It's never been like that since. We look back on it sometimes jealously and wish that we were there, but it was God's keynote address to humanity. Now, it's with that background that this letter opens, and as it does, we find that these Hebrew Christians who have come out of a a very clannish culture with tremendous heritage and richness, but who have, in a sense, departed from part of that in order to embrace this great Messiah, they're struggling. That's what this letter is all about. Their faith is not new at this point in time. They've been Christians for some 20 years, and they have experienced a great amount of persecution and rejection. And quite frankly, even in the midst of this great salvation, it's gotten old. These same Christians have lost some of their expectations about what the Christian life is all about. They haven't been realized, or at least in their actions, it hasn't been materialized yet. And so they become discouraged. And because they came out of Judaism, which like in other clans and cultures, can be tremendously powerful, the temptation now is to go back and to blend in in some form or fashion. There's a question, though, and it's the question that this writer, I think, answers over and over again. And it would probably be the question that was in these Hebrew Christians' minds. If we go back, what do we do with Jesus? (laughs) You see, these people had seen Jesus Christ. They weren't people who were just believing in faith from a distance like we are. They had been there doing His earthly ministry. They had seen His works and His words. So what do you do? Intellectually, you can't be dishonest. Well, evidently, some of these disillusioned Hebrew Christians had decided that perhaps we can reduce Jesus. We can keep Him, but reduce Him. If you'll remember from chapter 1 to to angelic status. That's why chapter 1 is filled, and part of chapter 2, with comparing Jesus to an angel, or to angels. They thought somehow if they can't get their Jewish brothers and sisters to accept Jesus as God in the flesh, or the Son of God, since they were believers and angels. Maybe he could be a mediator between God and man. Maybe he could be something like an angel and therefore in that compromised way they could hang on to Jesus Christ. 
Well, that's why when you go through this book, you see him referring to angels in chapters 1 and 2. For instance, look at verse 5 if you're in chapter 1, because he says, no, you can't do that because Jesus is greater than angels in every way. Verse 5, he says, listen, to which of the angels did God ever say, thou art my son? And then look at verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? until I make thine enemies a footstool for your feet. Have you ever said that of angels? Well, of course, they knew that that was not true. Now, in chapter 2, it does mention that Jesus Christ was made for a time a little lower than the angels. For instance, in verse 9, it says of chapter 2, we do see Him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, but there was purpose in that. Maybe there was confusion because of His incarnation, but the writer says don't be misled by Him being made in the shape and form and fashion of a man for a brief time. Don't come to the conclusion that somehow Jesus is less than what I presented Him to be, God in the flesh. Because He was made a little while lower than the angels for a purpose. And the purpose was for you. That He might be able to do something angels can't do, and that's identify with you. To feel with you to hurt with you, to feel the pressure that you feel, and then to offer help on the basis of that identification. That's why in verses 17 and 18, before we enter chapter 3, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, not some removed high priest, but a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. And then look at verse 18. It says, For he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, and because of that he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Do you see the identification there? Tremendous identification. But the identification is there so that no one, not even these Hebrew Christians who are feeling some disillusionment and discouragement like maybe you are today, could ever say to Jesus Christ, the God of heaven and earth, you don't know. You don't understand. You haven't walked in my shoes. See, Jesus has felt all those things. He knows your pain and my pain. He knows what it's like to be sorely tempted to the place of giving in because the temptation is so incredibly powerful. He knows what exhaustion is like. Remember, He fell asleep in the boat. He knows what loneliness is. He knows how to be forsaken even by His own Father. See, He knows where you are. So nobody can say, well, you're in the clergy. You're not in real life, Jesus. You don't, you don't really know what the real world's like out there. No, Jesus knows. The angels don't know. And God forbid, Bo doesn't know. But I want you to know, Jesus knows. Remember that. Jesus knows. And that's the whole point of this as it begins. And that, that should make Him more special than anyone else. Maybe He created the earth. That's true. But that's not what makes Him super special to me. It's that He knows me. That's what makes Him so incredibly special. That's what makes Him, at the bottom line, greater than the angels. Well, that being said, it brings us to chapter 3. There's been this comparison made between Jesus and the angels. Now we come to chapter 3, and Moses is brought up. The great leader of Israel. Let me read the first six verses for you. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, 
He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Now, when you first read that, you probably notice there's some obvious comparisons between Christ and Moses. In fact, most commentators, as you read their commentaries, will say to you that the main purpose of this opening section here in chapter 3 is to show the Jews these Jewish Christians, that Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. I personally do not think that. I do think there's some comparison here. Uh, certainly Jesus is greater than Moses. Certainly He is not just in the house of Israel working like Moses did, but He is over the house of Israel. He is the architect of Israel, as He is the architect of the whole earth. Remember how John started his gospel in John chapter 1? He says, all things came into being by Him, that is Jesus Christ. And apart from Him, nothing has come into being, including Israel. If you'll notice there in verse 5, it says Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. And certainly he was. But then notice the comparison to Jesus. Jesus was faithful, but not as a servant, as a son. Fact is, in Jesus' ministry, he said in John 8, 35, a servant does not remain in the house forever. He can, he dies, he perishes, he passes away. Moses did, but a son remains in the house forever. And Jesus has and is now over his house. So certainly Jesus is greater than Moses. But that's not the theme, I don't believe, if you really research down through chapter 3. Being greater than Moses is not the point. In fact, I think there's a much subtler comparison being made, and you can miss it if you just read through the chapter real quickly. I think that the comparison being made is between Moses and Jesus as great leaders on one hand and the unfaithfulness of people being led by them on the other hand. You see, Moses was faithful. Jesus was faithful. Moses had a ministry. Jesus had a ministry. Moses related to God. Jesus related to God. But what happened to the people in Moses' day? And now here's the question to these Hebrew Christians. What's going to happen to you with your great leader? If you'll think back with me, Moses was esteemed in Judaism above all Jews. Abraham may have founded the nation, but it was Jesus who was the builder of the nation. It was, I mean, Moses was the builder of the nation. Moses saved the nation. Moses was the deliverer of the nation. Moses was the leader of the nation. And that's why when people think back on Israel, oftentimes it's Moses who comes to mind. Moses was the great lawgiver. In fact, the law of Israel is so synonymous with Moses that they're almost used interchangeably. He was the one who delivered them from bondage, albeit a, a physical bondage, but in many ways he was a prototype of the Messiah. Remember he did all those signs and wonders and led the people out. He was a strong commanding leader. He looked like a Messiah. And I'm, I bet if you were a Jew living in this day and you thought about what the Messiah would look like, you'd probably think of Moses. 
But there's one other thing about Moses. Not only was he a miracle worker, a great leader, a guy unlike any other man apart from Jesus where God spoke, as it says in the Scripture, mouth to mouth. But Moses was trying to lead the people on a mission. Remember the mission? He was trying to lead them from bondage in Egypt through a wilderness into a promised land where they would have prosperity and fruitfulness and they would be the kind of people that God wanted them to be. And he had a tremendous task. If you go back and you look in Exodus and read about Moses as he tried to lead these people through that particular experience, especially when they got into the wilderness, one of the characteristics that said over and over of Moses was that he was faithful. Our text says that. Do you notice in uh, verse 2 it mentions that Moses was faithful. Then in verse 5 it says Moses was faithful. Faithfulness is a chief characteristic of this man. Fact is, between Exodus 35 and 40, the word faithful is used of Moses 22 times. When you get to chapter 40, obedience, which is another form of faithfulness, is used of Moses eight times. So there was nothing wrong with the leader. Does that make sense? Nothing wrong with the leader. Godly man, anybody would want this guy to deliver them. There's only one problem. He didn't. He didn't deliver them. He didn't finish the mission. They didn't get in the promised land. And why? Well, the answer is clear. Not because of the leader. One, because of him. He was faithful. And now these Hebrew Christians were in a similar danger. And so he gives them a reminder, an illustration from their past. He calls them back to the wilderness. And he says, let me tell you about these people. You know them, but let me just remind you what they were like. Look at verse 8, because he quotes Psalm 95 about the wilderness wanderings. And God speaking. says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, that is in the wilderness, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me judged me, put me to test, though they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and I said, they always go astray in their hearts and they did not know my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. Why didn't they get into the rest? Now, the rest is another word for the promised land or Canaan. Why didn't they get into the rest? It wasn't because of the leader. If you go back and you read through, as I did this week, the book of Exodus, the accounts and numbers, here's the things you find. And they're very similar to where these Hebrew Christians are. And I think these images would have come up into their mind. You see, when they were in the wilderness, they sought to reduce God too. Remember how they reduced God? What did they reduce God to? A golden calf. Something they could see. Something they could feel. Something they could take pride in. Because they didn't want to live by an invisible God who was giving them commandments from on high and especially through a leader. Now I think that would have stunned these Hebrew Christians toying with the idea of reducing Jesus to something less than He is. 
They didn't make it because God's miracles were never enough. Remember, they saw my works for 40 years. Remember, Jesus in an earthly ministry with the Pharisees, He said, you do not believe me, but why don't you at least believe the works that I do? You can see them. I've provided them there for you. You know what all that tells me? Who's 2,000 years removed from miracles, those kind of miracles, is that miracles won't help me be obedient. I can say, as I've heard some people say when I was in college and heard others say when we're around having coffee, well, if I could just see Jesus Christ, if I could just see Him do one of those things, then I'd believe. And Jesus said, even if you saw somebody raised from the dead, you wouldn't believe on that basis. Miracles are not going to help you get to the promised land. Miracles didn't help Israel get to the promised land, did they? And yet they were afforded those miracles, just as these Jewish Christians had been afforded the privilege of seeing Jesus Christ heal people, raise people from the dead, speak incredible truths. In the wilderness wanderings, they sought to blend back into their culture. Remember, they got around these Moabites and they built an altar, altar to Baal. They also fantasized about how good it once was in Egypt. How fun it was there, rather than how good it could be by faith to get into the land. And it compromised their aggressive, radical faith. Has that happened to you? See, that's why they didn't get in. Instead, what happened was they got into the wilderness and they became stubborn. They became resistant. They were definitely undisciplined the whole time. But chiefly among their attributes were that they were unbelieving. The, the life of faith, I mean, the life of deliverance through Moses, that was, that was great because all you had to do was embrace what the leader had done through God. But now in the wilderness, when they were called to personal account and personal responsibility and faith in an unseen God, that was totally different. They had to put things on the line and that was uncomfortable to them. And remember, their picture of life as a nation is the picture of the Christian life. Remember, they were in Egypt in bondage, oblivious to, to, to deliverance. Moses shows up out of the blue, and how do they get delivered initially? Well, by believing in the blood. Remember, they put the blood over the doorposts. It's like we believe in the blood. Then they went through a baptism. They went through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses. Now, I'm not just saying that. That's quoted in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10. It says, they were baptized in the sea. They were baptized into Moses. They had a Moses baptism, just like you and me, except we're baptized into Christ. They saw wonderful works. They had a great leader, a great congregation. They had all those things. And yet, they did, never, they did not receive their inheritance. Do you know a Christian has an inheritance? Ephesians 1 tells us we have been blessed with all the spiritual blessings. There's an inheritance, but that inheritance is different. It's in some ways a little bit mysterious. It has attached to it a mission. It has attached to it a character transformation. It has attached to it certain specific responsibilities and attached to all those things is faith. Not conformity. And he was asking them to take that and to be stretched by that in this wilderness testing time so that they could enter into the place of fruitfulness regardless of what was in that land. But they could walk with power and clarity, individually responsible to God. That's what the challenge was. 
And yet they failed. And so the example, as I read through this, for these, if I were a young Hebrew Christian reading this letter to me, the thing that would leap off the page to me would be this question. Are you going to be like that? Are you going to repeat the same history lesson? Are you going to do the same thing to your leader as they did to their leader? That's the question. And it is a powerful question that rings all the way through this book. When I was growing up, there was a television series called Wagon Train. Some of you might remember that. It was in black and white with Ward Bond. I remember Ward Bond. It was a show that I enjoyed as a young boy. And we would see all these different uh, trials and tribulations of the wagons going west to California for this new life. And Ward Bond was always trying to help certain people on the wagon train get into line, get their responsibilities right, uh, fight off dangers, certain this and that, all the way through as they moved through these plains of the Great West. I also remember that the series ended with them never getting to California. Did you know that? When those adults left Egypt, they were headed somewhere. And though they didn't say like Ward Bond said, wagons ho, it was Moses, their trail boss, saying, restward, ho, and he was taking them somewhere. There was a goal. Not just deliverance. Deliverance was part of the process. But deliverance was not all that there was. There was a goal in mind of fruitfulness, of prosperity, of clarity and responsibility. And each person had to decide for themselves as they crossed the plain whether they wanted to receive that too. Verse 11 says, though, they did not enter my rest. The series ended in numbers <laughs> with them not entering the rest. Were they God's people? Yes. Did they ever receive God's lifestyle? No. I think the application here, some in many respects, should be pretty obvious to us because I think we can be God's people. I think we are God's people if we know Jesus Christ. But remember, you can still miss the rest. There's, there's something in the Christian life that goes beyond just deliverance. When Jesus was on earth, He said, My kingdom is not of this world. There was mystery to His kingdom. And there is mystery to Jesus' kingdom. It's here. It's around us. It's available to us. And His kingdom equals rest. But to enter into that rest means that while you're in the plain of wilderness, there are things you have to learn. You have to learn how to live by faith. Not faith in God, faith in God in your life circumstances. There's a difference there. It has to complete the sentence. You have to learn how to obey even when it doesn't feel good. And I have grieved over Christian after Christian who gets up to the place of a non-feel-good faith experience and they retreat when the opportunity is there to see God work. You have to learn how to persevere even when your leader, that is Jesus, doesn't seem to know where he's going. Man, I've been there. 
when I've wondered, what are you doing here? I can see, and all I see is sand. But that's the time to persevere. You have to learn how to refuse compromise, even when others, other Christians are saying, I'm going to do it anyway. You can always find somebody to agree with your sin in the Christian community. You have to learn how to reject fantasies of how much better a life of sin would be now that you're on the other side. Boy, if I could just go back to those days. Man, they were great. Remember college? Boy, that was wonderful. College wasn't wonderful. If so, go back. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. And the life of sin isn't. But, you know, there are times you're tempted to say, I wish I hadn't gotten into this, the good life. I remember when it was really good. See, when these things have been learned, that's on the plain of wilderness, then all of a sudden, and it's all of a sudden in many cases, the kingdom appears. It's just there. And suddenly there's a place of fruitfulness and peace and rest, even while those circumstances are going on. Now, before we go on to verse 12, I want to point out there are two ifs in this passage that confuse people who read Hebrews. You might just circle them. There's an if in verse 6, and there's an if in verse 7. And the reason I want to point those out is, one, to keep you from being confused, but also to say that these two if clauses are suggesting two different people. And keeping them different will help you understand this book. Let me read the first one. It says in verse 6, after it says, whose house we are, that is, as Christians, and then it adds this if clause. It's a little scary. It says, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope until the end. If we do that, then we're, we're Christians. Then look at verse 14. It says, for we became, we've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. What does that mean? Well, I believe that's declaring something that the New Testament declares, but sometimes uh, we don't think about because I don't know if we always have this happen here, but these Christians were experiencing some of their numbers going back to Judaism. They had released Christ saying, I can't believe this anymore, and they have gone and re-embraced Judaism. And the big question comes in mind, and every once in a while you'll see that if clause sprinkled through this letter. Just a one line, and it goes back to the argument. And you want to say, like these Hebrew Christians said of their friends who went back to Judaism, what happened to them? What does that mean? Uh, recently, I read in the paper about Chris Jackson. Chris Jackson uh, played basketball at Louisiana State. He was scoring 40, 50 points a game his first two years in college. Leap from college into the pros. He's the starting guard for the Denver Nuggets. This week in the paper, there was a little clip on Chris Jackson that said he had embraced the Muslim faith. And then it went on and said that his friends from Mississippi, where he grew up in this little town in Mississippi, were real upset about him embracing the Muslim faith because he had grown up in a Baptist church there. And they were asking the question, this is what it said, what does that mean? Here's what the New Testament says that means. You can fill it in on your outline. It means this. If you depart, you never belong. That's what it means. If you depart, you never belonged. Hebrews, more than any other book, though it's not the only book, makes it clear that continuing in the faith is one of the clear signs of being truly born again. Remember, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You don't get unsealed. 
of the Holy Spirit. Great Christian scholar F.F. F. Bruce says, Nowhere in the New Testament do we find such repeated insistence that continuance in the Christian life is the test and the proof of its reality. 1 John 2.19 it says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. That's the first if clause. Then there's a second if clause that is really more in keeping with the overall theme here. And that's in verse 7 where it says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice. Now, the you there are those Christians who are remaining. It's an appeal to those Hebrew Christians. But here's what He says if you want to summarize verses 7 through 11. He says, and this is the second blank, If you belong, you can still miss out. That's what verse Verses 7 through 11 says. You know, I had to ask myself, how many Christians do I know who have left Egypt, figuratively speaking? They've been a Christian for 20 years and they're still in the wilderness. How many do I know like that? How many do you know? You left Egypt with the blood, with the baptism. You're in the wilderness. But the problem is you're still in the wilderness. The word rest still doesn't register. The word clarity, the word mission, the word responsibility, and the word, word believing faith in real life situations, the kingdom is distant with those phrases. Verse 10 tells us why people find themselves in that critical condition years later. Oftentimes people lack instruction. And I'm not talking about just sitting under Bible teaching, but I'm talking about Bible teaching that can get out into the marketplace so that when you're being asked to sign this document that's not true or pay this bill that's not real or do this or do that or shade this statement, in the real life you have this in your heart. That's the other. And when you don't have that, then the only impulse you can rely upon is your own upbringing, your own heritage, your own inclinations, and your own depravity. And it always leads you the wrong direction. That's what this says. You know, I think it's interesting when you get to verse 11, he does not say that he refused to let them enter the promised land, but he uses a different word. He uses the word rest. Rest. We're not talking about the cessation of activity. Because when they got in the promised land, they fought enemies. They, they took on responsibilities. They had a lot of things that they did. But let me tell you, what real rest is, is a person who, who as they use in athletics, walks within themselves. Have you ever heard that term? He's playing within himself. They walk because they know who they are. They know what God's asking them to do. Their heart is very pliable towards Him. They're constantly wanting to relate Him to real life. They feel clear in their conscience. They feel powerful in their character. And they impact others. And they're at rest with life. What a wonderful word to replace promised land. Rest. Rest. If you want to know on any issue, if you were in the wilderness or in the kingdom, asking the rest question is a good measuring stick. Now, let me tell you, on, on new issues that come up in my life, I've got to walk across the plain of wilderness again. Because when you walk across on that new issue, the plain is not necessarily evil. It's a place where you get tested. It's a place where you have to stretch your faith. You have to believe God for things that are unbelievable. You have to go a, a further distance. You're wondering, when are we going to quit eating this manna? 
You know, there's a place there. But if I'm moving forward in the wilderness, it's a place of development. It's when I become resistant in the wilderness and unyielding in the wilderness and unbelieving in the wilderness that the wilderness turns to a place of punishment, not a place of development. God always is going to bring you to the other side. But you have to believe. And what was the Hebrew Christian's problem? They didn't know how to believe. They didn't know how to trust. They didn't want to embrace the radical Christ that they did just 20 years previous and move on to fruitfulness. If you belong, you can still miss out. Now in verses 12 through 19, there are what I call seven habits of an effective Christ follower. And I'm just going to read down through these, make a couple of comments, and we'll be done. But let me read these because these are habits and things you might remember for your own life to see where you are. Because remember, we want here as a church more than Christian. More than Christian. That's not good enough here. Christ follower. That's what we want. And here's some habits of Christ followers. First of all, in verse... 12, they are personally vigilant. Notice what it says. Take care, brethren. In other words, give some attention here. Lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. When I read that this week, I thought, what are the issues in my life where I just can't believe God? What are they? You know, the fastest way through a difficult circumstances or a trial or a conflict is not by disbelieving God. It's not by falling away, and it's certainly not by taking control. It's to do the illogical and the unreasonable. And what is that? Believe God even more. That's the fastest way through a trial. By believing God even more. Then look at verse 13. Effective Christ followers will always seek the encouragement of others. It says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called a day, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christ followers always gather around them other mature Christians for encouragement. You know why? Because they know the Holy Spirit will speak through them. In fact, the word encourage here is parakaleo. We get the word parakletos from it. Parakletos is the word used of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the encourager, the convictor. Other Christians are used by the Holy Spirit, and here's what I'd like to say most often, to talk tough to our flesh. Ever had another Christian talk tough to your flesh? Not to you, but to your flesh. To come up to you and say, you know, I love you, but you're just not committed to our group. Talk about being committed to the group. But it's just obvious you're not committed to the group. Now you can tell me what you want, but I'm telling you as a brother, you're not. That's talking tough to the flesh. Or to say, you know, I've noticed you in the office here, lingering over here by this person's desk. It's not going to help you. That's going to hurt you. I need people like that. Christ followers make it a habit to have people like that. Then look at verses 14 and 15. It tells us that effective Christ followers work to keep their hearts soft. For if we become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end... While it is said, and he's speaking to those Christians now, not the non-Christian, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. You know, I started again. This is about my 1,050th time to work out. And uh, 
it's something that, you know, it's just part of my lifestyle. But anyway, I, I decided to lift a few weights this week, and my shoulders, my chest are just killing me up here. It's hard to even hold this Bible. But I, you know, I see people working hard to keep their muscles hard. And I knew I needed to do that when I stepped out of the shower and I noticed in the mirror I looked more like the Pillsbury Doughboy than some of my old pictures. But, uh, but you have to work hard at that. It takes discipline. And how much discipline? Regular, consistent discipline. I want you to know in the Christian life, you have to work hard to keep your heart soft, pliable, responsive. It's not something that comes automatic. You have to read the scripture and ask hard questions. Do I do that? Do I believe that? Do I want to become that? And then weep if you don't. That's the person who's got a good habit pattern. Then Christ's followers remind themselves of the limited power of spiritual leadership. Notice it says in verse 16, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, and then it adds, led by Moses? <laughs> you know, it is, it's so easy. Notice the phrase, they were led by Moses. It's so easy to admire, to admire but not embrace the spiritual authority and power and lifestyle of a leader. You can admire it. You can say, I'd like to be like that. Kind of like the violinist where the guy came up and said, boy, I'd love to play. I'd give my life to play like you do. And the violinist said, I did. I did give my life to play like that. But do you admire somebody, but then like a parasite, it's going to be his energy that carries you to the promised land. It won't get you there. I can promise you. It's great to come in and sing and praise the Lord and read the Scripture. But when you get out in the hard alleys of life, you're going to get beat up. Because spiritual leadership is not there. And you know what? Christ's followers know that. They enjoy spiritual leaders. They like the use of their gift. They like the encouragement it gives them. But then they go on and say, but I'm responsible for my life. I'm not going to give it to Him. It's me that's going to make the decisions for my life. Then in verse 17 and 18, a Christ follower carries the conviction that God is serious when he says that sin and blessing are incompatible. These are scary words, folks, but notice what it says. And with whom was he angry? Can God get angry? Absolutely. For 40 years he was angry. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they shall not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Does that scare you? See, we live in a world that thinks we can bring sin and blessing together. But God says, welcome to the wilderness, because I will not be mocked. Thank you. <laughs> Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And then lastly, or excuse me, the last verse says, in verse 19, Christ's followers fear missing out. And so we see, it says in verse 19, that, th that those were not able to enter because of unbelief. See, the true Christ follower 
the kind of person I want to be around, he doesn't, he doesn't fear missing out on the pleasures of life or not going to that special place that my friends got to go to or that I can wrap my life up tightly into a small little lifestyle of comfort. He doesn't fear missing comfort. He doesn't fear missing those rugged slopes that sometimes appear in life and that challenge him to the very core. He doesn't fear those kind of slopes. What he fears is that he will miss out on seeing God. What he fears is that he will miss out on seeing the wonder of his invisible kingdom at work in his real life. What he fears is the amazement of his wisdom as he applies his word to real life situations that he'll never enjoy or taste of that. What he fears is that he will not see any daring rescues by God rescuing him out of desperate situations. He fears he'll never see that. What he fears is that he will never see or feel that deep satisfaction and joy that comes when somebody took a desperate faith step in the midst of a tough situation and suddenly the room was filled with the presence of God. Nobody was there but him and God. And he goes, God, you really are here. He fears he'll miss that. And then finally, if you'll turn over to Matthew 11, which I think Matthew 11 is simply nothing more than a restatement of this whole chapter. A Christ follower spells rest, J-E-S-U-S. Verse 25, Jesus does two things here. Three verses He talks to God and three verses He talks to those listening to Him talk to God. He's just finished talking about the stubbornness of people's hearts. And then He looks up to heaven and He says, I praise Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou didst hide these things from the wise and the intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in Thy sight. All things have been handed over to, be, to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And then to those around Him, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. A Christ follower. He spells rest. J-E-S-U-S. -S. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this word of exhortation. It doesn't necessarily make us feel good, but it is real life spoken to us by God who cares that we make it to the finish line. Lord, I pray that You might make our hearts responsive. And Lord, as I will pray all the way through this series, I pray that You will make us through it more than Christian, but a Christ follower. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. 
This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.